Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Weekly episode summaries and programming notes for the week of June 26th, 2022. Excited for a new announcement this week. We've got the meetup group back up and running. Hopefully this is recorded in advance, etc. There's some pretty interesting things happening. This, to start before we get into the episode summaries, it's another call out to share what you are learning, even small increments. Just drop them in the general discussion channel on the Slack or whatever. More insights means less friction and pain for others. And who knows, it might spark some really interesting conversations leading to meeting awesome people to exchange information with. Put out the approaches you are taking and that can just lead to good feedback and good additional relationships. Oh, and literally, if you have a a specifically written definition of what a mesh data product you know, that data quantum is to your organization, please send it to me. I can remove your name, your company's name, whatever, if you want, but we keep going down this rabbit hole. People need more specifics. So put something out for people to understand. It does not have to be perfect, damn it. Just give me something. People are really frustrated by this, especially if you've got something where it's not all the technical definitions of what this, what would you take to a data product owner? What would you say, this is what you're going to own? That is something that needs to be discussed in every organization and there aren't examples. No one is publishing their their example of what that means and we need that. So on to the lineup for this week and then followed by the extended summaries as per usual. Oh, and more people should sign up for the Patreon. Right now, as a community, we aren't showing that people are really demanding any more content, which I think is why we're not getting all that much incremental content. We keep getting the what is data mesh type content. So on Monday, we have episode number 93, Empower to the People, Data Collaboration and Observability at Enterprise Scale. This is an interview with Jay Sen. Jay shared his learnings from working to implement a number of initiatives to improve data quality and understandability just in general at PayPal. There's a lot of interesting tidbits that will help drive you forward that he's learned from, you know, really operating at very, very large scale and very complex, complicated situations. On Tuesday, it's a special announcement for the Mesh Musings of a new initiative I'm doing to help the community. So check it out. Not going to spoil anything here. On Friday, it's episode 94, Measuring Your Data Mesh Journey Progress with Fitness Functions, which is an interview with Dave Coles from uh, ThoughtWorks. So Dave did a webinar with Jamak on the concept of fitness functions last year. There 
really useful things in, in measuring how you are doing kind of in general with your IT implementation. So we took the time to discuss how we'd use them to measure your progress in a data mesh journey. The title kind of tells it all, <laughs> honestly. So with that, again, please share more of what you're doing internally for external consumption. And let's go ahead and get to the extended summaries for the episodes, the interview episodes for this week. Extended summary for episode 93, Empower to the People, Collaboration and Observability at Enterprise Scale, an interview with Jay Sen. In this episode, I interviewed Jay Sen, a data product domain expert and builder, as well as an open source committer at PayPal. While Jay works at PayPal, he was only representing his own views in this podcast episode. Jay took a few lessons from working on central service, a central services team in a company of about 200 people. Having a centralized team at that point was, was doable at first, but as the organization scaled, it quickly got complicated. As a centralized team, it was very easy to become a bottleneck, but Jay learned a lesson that has continued to help him in his subsequent roles. Empower people don't do their jobs. In other words, focus on reducing the frictions to others doing their work instead of doing it for them. Easier said than done, of course. So how do you actually empower people? Per Jay, you must understand the business aspect of what the requester actually needs. That isn't really going to get communicated well in a ticket most times. So you have to have a high context information exchange to take what they need and convert it into a workable solution. And often there is already a solution in place, but it's just not handling the job anymore. So you want to consider if you should solve the same issues in a better way. It's much easier to do a greenfield deploy, but brownfield is an inevitable facet of enterprise data work. Per J, a few good things to remember. One, frameworks and technology come and go, but the concepts are the things that stick around. Focus on solving your issues by at most leveraging technology and frameworks, not relying on them. Number two, when working in data, you can't favor data producers or consumers over the other. It is easy for many to align with those data consumers if you've got that kind of data engineering background, but all stakeholders need assistance. Number three, beware the kind of cool and trendy tech or, or approaches. It's a little funny to say that in a data mesh podcast, although I'd say I'm pretty pragmatic about where we are with data mesh at this point. But often engineers just want to play with cool things and take on gnarly challenges. Stay focused on the business issues and value. Number four is trust in data takes a long time to build and seconds to break in Jay's experience. So really kind of try and prepare yourself to have a good experience there. For Jay, self-service can be a very slippery slope. It often creates more issues than it solves, but it really kind of feels 
like it solves something, and that is the allure. Part of the issue of self-serve is that it removes the necessary communication as well as reducing friction to accessing data. So you can get to the data, but you don't have the understanding necessary to actually use it. And that understanding often has come historically from having conversations with the, the data producers. It's also crucial to embed governance into data access if you are going for something like self-serve. There is often a high cost to adopting any technology in Jay's view, not just initial adoption, but tool stewardship. But it's typically much higher for the latest technologies. Make sure if you were looking at an immature solution or technology that you're focused on solving the right problems with that tool. Jay shared another insight about data contracts, which is that they're evolving in a good direction, but they're still not addressing all the challenges people think they do or especially want data contracts to handle. They can be really good at making sure people understand their responsibilities. As Emily Gorsinski noted in her episode as well, you must drive to meaningful conversations between producers and consumers to define quality very specifically, as well as some other SLOs. In Jay's view, contracts work in an ideal world of one-to-one communication between domains, but often there are multiple parties from each side that view things slightly differently. So the contracts rarely fully cover all use cases and can be, at best, a good conversation point for negotiations. I think this is an interesting viewpoint that we haven't heard, is if you don't have really, really simple one-to-one actual consumption of data that you can, that data contracts may not cover all that you want them to. Jay is excited that the data catalog space is is getting some very necessary attention. Every company of any size is now dealing with kind of petabyte level of data. So organizing it is becoming a major necessity and challenge. There are quite a few challenges left to tackle in the data catalog space. One would be automated data set discovery and definitions. Another naming conventions still aren't standardized. Another of over-reliance on auto-documentation when human input is really required (laughs) in the documentation. Another is how do we build trust? How can we empower the data applications? How do we deal with the trapped metadata problem, et cetera? There's a lot in this space that still needs (laughs) much, much better addressing. Jay believes that the catalog must have the understanding not just of what the data set is, but also why it exists. Again, I think this is that documentation where so many people are doing the auto-documentation, but that's very much about what the data is, not like why it exists, why you might want to use it, and not just what the data is, but what's the information encapsulated in that data. When asked about whether he thought systems or people should be the focus in enabling data discovery, Jay said to focus on systems to make the onboarding experience the best it can be. That will make it easiest for people as as you scale. I disagree and believe there really is something to a data concierge role that will serve organizations well. But 
I also believe that exceedingly few organizations will actually create and really leverage such a role. But I think having a couple of people who really can go and do the digging around, okay, you're trying to find this type of information. Let's figure out if it exists and things like that. If we try and over-automate and make all of data discovery completely automated, you're going to end up with a kludgy situation as we've seen so many times in, in people trying to address challenges like this. Jay then shared his thoughts on understanding, containing, and preventing unnecessary costs in data management in the cloud. It's quite important as it is very, very easy to spend a lot when you move to the cloud. I really strongly agree because I previously managed AWS costs for a public company and saw how easy it is to, to go overboard firsthand. Jay pointed out that it's often a bad idea to do a one-to-one -one mapping of what you were doing on-prem to the cloud. The cost structure of cloud is often very different and it can cost you a fortune. A lot of people really learn this around data transfer. You know, when you're inside your own data center, you don't care about data transfer between machines, but it can really rack up a lot of costs. Uh, but re-architecting also has a cost. Evaluating that those costs and, and the cost benefit of everything, you know, not just the single AWS bill or cloud bill cost, but all of the other aspects of cost, opportunity cost, and things like that. Evaluating that cost should play a role in every part of data work if you really want to drive good business outcomes. So in wrapping up, Jay reiterated that technology needs to solve real business problems, not just be cool and fun and trendy. Really consider the long-term costs of adopting a new solution as well. So some key takeaways, thoughts that I had that I think are from Jay's point of view. Number one, when you get to a certain scale, any central team should focus on, as Jay said, empower people. Don't try to do their jobs. That's how you build towards scale and maintain flexibility. Your centralized team likely won't become a bottleneck if they aren't making decisions on behalf of other teams. Number two, to actually empower other teams, dig into the actual business need and work backwards to a solution that can solve that. If there is a solution already in place that isn't working anymore, look to find ways to augment that rather than trying to replace or reinvent the wheel. Number three, self-service is a slippery slope. It often solves immediate problem of time to market, but also creates next level challenges. A big issue is that when you remove friction to data access, you are throwing the challenge of finding the right data on consumers' plates. Number four, data contracts are great when everybody aligns on them and there are enough tools to support them. But they also create proliferation of data to enforce the contracts required by multiple consumers. They often don't survive the real world. If there are multiple different consumers of the contract, it can be that you either have to create contracts with each of them or, or it's challenging. Number five, the data catalog space is finally getting some needed attention, but there are still a myriad of issues that need solving when thinking about the data catalog space. Will those be solved by technology or by leveraging something like a data concierge? It remains to be seen. Whether, again, whether this is 
people or process and technology or you know what what's going to be the the thing that really helps us address a lot of these different issues i think it'll kind of start to split itself out um, and that some will focus more on the technology and some will be more uh, addressed by the people side. Number six, and finally, it's insanely easy to overspend in the cloud. Everyone is vaguely aware, but cost should be part of every important discussion. You can drive business value, but it absolutely must be focused on the cost as return on investment is far more important than simply a return. Extended summary for episode 95, Measuring Your Data Mesh Progress with Fitness Functions, an interview with Dave Coles. So I interviewed Dave, who is the Director of Data and AI at ThoughtWorks Australia. I invited Dave on due to a few pieces of content that he had done, including a webinar on fitness functions with Shamac in 2021. So Dave mentioned he first started Uh, discussing fitness functions regarding data mesh to shift the conversation from people asking, what do we build to what does good look like? And I think that's a very important distinction. And I think that's a very, it's a much better question to ask than what exactly do we build? Fitness functions, when done right, can give a, a good view of how well an organization is doing relative to data mesh implementation goals by providing objective measures of success at a granular level that can be summed up to a bigger picture. So what actually is a fitness function? As defined by ThoughtWorks in a May 2018 technology radar piece, quote unquote, borrowed from evolutionary computing, a fitness function is used to summarize how close a given design solution is to achieving the set aims. An architectural fitness function, as defined in building evolutionary architectures, provides an objective integrity assessment of some architectural characteristics, which may encompass existing verification criteria, such as unit testing, metrics, monitors, and so on. So what does that all mean? It's it's that you've got these kind of objective measures to actually say, is this doing what we want it to do, right? From an architectural standpoint, uh, you know, does this pass all the tests? Does it meet our interoperability standards? Does it do X or Y or Z? You can say, what would be the good thing and then test against that? There's some really good uh, discussion about that, obviously in Building Evolutionary Architectures, the book, but also in the book that Jamak was uh, a co-author on of, software architecture, the the hard parts. Um, so fitness functions can take us from measuring success on vanity metrics, like amount of data processed or stored to value-based metrics, according to Dave. It is important to think about what good looks like now and in the future. So starting to put your fitness functions in place early in your data mesh journey can give you a good sense of where you've 
been when designing where you want to go. Fitness functions give you an ability to stay focused on why are we doing this? That intentionality is crucial. When thinking concretely about some fitness functions for a data product, Dave gave a few good examples, such as does this meet health checks for testing? Is it satisfying its SLOs, etc.? It can be a good idea to have a target metric with kind of a yes-no type of answer, you know, failing or passing as you start to use fitness functions. Metric measurements without context are typically not valuable. Latency of five minutes might be great for one data product and not another. Accuracy of 90% might be atrocious for one data product and great for another. You can implement fitness functions for all aspects of a data mesh implementation in Dave's view. Look at the four key principles of data mesh from you know, Jamak's work, and, and you can start to break down your goals for each one into, a, into fitness functions. A good overall question to try to answer is, are we reducing the interdependence of domains? So if you were to look for a fitness function about kind of domains, are they providing value via their data products to consumers? For the platform team, have they made it easier to create and manage data products? So you could look at the amount of time that it takes for someone to create a new data product or, you know, the amount of time spent managing a a data product. Are we reducing that overall? For governance, overall is the value of the whole implementation greater than the sum of the parts. You can answer answer fitness functions at that micro level and then take your overall measurements to get a more complete picture to assess how your implementation is going. So you can have, you know, 10 fitness functions against each data product, and then you can push that against your, you know, 100, 200, 300 data products and say, okay, big picture, are we doing testing well or things like that? For Dave, when assessing that bigger picture, as previously mentioned, it is good to think about your bigger picture and measurement of success over time. What you measure with fitness functions can and should evolve, but having your rates and ratios spanning your implementation timeline can give you a good indication of, again, where you're, you've been improving and where you need to work more and, and are you headed in the right direction. Similar to Shane Gibson's episode on using patterns in data, fitness functions may be valuable to other organizations and not yours, and they may also lose relevance over time. Measure things that will cause you to act based on the outcomes. Katie Bauer mentioned that in her episode. Nothing in your data mesh journey should really be seen as done and fixed. Your data mesh implementation is a live implementation. You're not at the end of your journey. It's not fixed. Things should evolve or it means your organization is probably stagnant. Change for the sake of change is obviously bad, but you should evaluate if your fitness functions are still helping you measure against your idea of what good looks like. Do we need fitness functions against our fitness functions? (laughs) Dave talked about how well team topologies aligns with implementing data mesh as organizational changes are such a crucial part to success in a data mesh implementation. The team topologies approach 
focuses on enabling the domain team called a stream align team to be the primary unit of value in IT. A platform team enables but loosely coordinates at most when possible to prevent blocking the work of the stream align teams again as much as possible. Per some past research conducted by Dave, it took 12x longer for a team to accomplish some work if they had to go outside their team. So prevent that if possible, right? That's again where we get into bottlenecks. But Dave warned that right now, especially in data mesh, it is important to not just add more and more work to the stream aligned teams. I've talked about this with domain teams. That's basically what a stream aligned team is in, in this sense, that we can't just add more and more responsibility to them and expect it to go well. Team topologies can help us answer, how do you build capabilities in a decentralized world, especially to implement something like data mesh? Per Dave, it is helpful when there is multidisciplinary collaboration by the stream aligned teams with the enablement teams to develop their first data product. So you're going to have those enablement teams really working pretty closely for the first data product development with those stream aligned team. The enablement team is also tasked with bringing back incremental learnings that they had from those interactions to add to the platform to make the next teams work creating and maintaining data products better and easier. Continuous improvement via learning from each implementation. On this topic, Dave talked about how useful it is to optimize for learning, you know, rather than optimize purely for that initial value creation of each data product when you're working in a data mesh implementation. With the enablement teams bringing learning back to improve the core platform, we can implement friction-reducing enhancements like sensible defaults and starter kits and templates, really focus on efficiently learning so that you can scale. When designing or creating a mesh data product, Dave recommends a customer-led approach. There should be a consumer with a specific use case as the reason to create that mesh data product. We talked about this as to what is the genesis reason for creating a data product. A mesh data product should be a valuable representation of the domain through data but the operational and analytical planes naturally diverge unless we evolve the analytical to match the new reality in the operational. But we don't have a great way of evolving that analytical, what we're sharing from the in the analytical plane without data consumer disruption. Per Dave, creating a thin slice is one way to help maintain representing your domains via mesh data products. A thinner slice has a reduced scope, so you will likely not have as much difficulty creating and maintaining that singular data product. But I mentioned that this can lead to a large number of data products, which can make data discovery a challenge. It's all trade-offs in the end. And you can use fitness functions to measure if you are making the right trade-offs too. 